Welcome to the City Collective Church Podcast. We believe we are better together and exist to create space for everyone to discover life in Jesus. We hope that in today's message, you encounter the heart of God and are challenged and inspired in your relationship with Christ. Happy Palm Sunday. I hope you're doing well. I hope that it has been uh, a good week. There's a little bit of sunshine yesterday for us to partake in, and uh, I hope that you did so. Every time we get sunshine in the Lower Mainland, we soak it up. Isn't that right? Uh, we, we do everything we can to make sure we hold on to it, but it's because spring is here, and so that's a, that's a wonderful part of it. And as spring comes, Easter is also on the horizon. So uh, this is my invitation to you. It's great to be together here on this Palm Sunday, and it is a wonderful thing to be together as a church. Easter is that time of year where it is an easy invitation that, that someone that you might not know is, uh, or you might know is, is not too comfortable in a, in a church environment, or doesn't come to church on a regular basis, or they don't know Jesus at all. Hey, Easter is a great time. We're going to have a, a wonderful celebration next Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. And on the Friday, we'll, we're going to be participating in the Langley-wide uh, Good Friday service that's going to be happening at CLA 9 and 11. I would love to see you there. Uh, Adriana and I will be there at the 9 o'clock service if you want to join us on Friday as we uh, move forward into to Holy Week. Uh, today being Palm Sunday, the arrival of Jesus into Jerusalem. Now, we are in the middle of a series, week six, in fact, of the gospel according to John. And it's been a beautiful series. This is what I want you to know about the gospel of John. If you haven't had a chance to maybe dive into it previously, don't have much exposure to it, John is a, a lover, not a fighter. Uh, John likes to... to accentuate the facts that Jesus loves him. I've come to love this about the Bible, that it is inspired by God, but it definitely has the the humanity of it also intertwined. Because John, he he writes this story about Jesus, but he is very quick to identify that he was the most beloved. (laughs) He, he, he loves to, to tell the story of Jesus, not simply in the sense of the narrative of what takes place, but asking the question of himself as he's writing, why have I fallen in love with this one? What, what, what has shaped my heart to come to this revelation for, my, for myself? And so from the very beginning in John 1, this prologue is set that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. And, and this, this beautiful poem is set before us to lay, set layers of what is actually taking place. That there, there's layers to this. That light into the darkness it is a constant theme throughout the Scripture. And so we've gone on this journey through the Gospel of John. And this past Sunday, we spent time in the upper room with the disciples, where Jesus has this, this moment of humility and servant attitude that he brings forward, and he washes the feet of his disciples. And and he does so in this invitation to to humility over pride, to overcome what this world might invite us into. Where the world might say pride is the way to success, Jesus presents that victory comes through humility. 
And it's this beautiful story that he, he presents to his disciples before he takes that idea of servanthood all the way to the cross. And so th- this morning, we're going to take some time and we're going to go into uh, John chapter 18. It's, it's a significant series of events. It, it's the beginning of the passion narrative. And we're going to read a, co- a portion at the beginning and the portion at the end of John 18. But here's some idea of what's going on. They've just finished praying. And they've been in the Garden of Gethsemane praying, and, and they are suddenly confronted by, by soldiers who are coming to, in their minds, stop an insurrection. And they've come to arrest Jesus. And there, there's a dramatic sequence of events that takes place. And, and Peter, he responds with, with this violent approach of, I'm going to cut off the, the ear of, of, of the servant. And, and it's, it's this moment where Jesus then responds with grace again. And then they're dispersed. And Peter then goes through this, this narrative of denying Jesus three times. And then Jesus is brought before the religious authority in the area, and, and he's brought on trial. It's a mock trial. It's, it's, it's not, there's nothing that's actually legitimate in it, and then he's brought before Pilate. So this is what we're going to be reading about this morning. So if you can follow along with me, you can follow along on the screen, starting John 18, verse 1. So it says, When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now, Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So so Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. The sequence of events follows, and then we're going to jump all the way to verse 28. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor, By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanliness, they did not enter the palace. I find it so ironic often in Scripture. There's this moment that they want to put an innocent man on trial, and yet they're telling themselves, we're going to say, stay ceremonially clean. We're going to follow our religious precepts, despite what is taking place in our hearts. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. And Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked? Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. Why is it you have done? What is it you have done? 
Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. What is truth, retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered around and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. No, Barabbas had taken part. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. And thus ends John 18. I think for many of us, uh, life mostly is one big routine. I think we tend to buy the same things. Let's be honest. When you go to Costco, you've got your set Costco list. Uh, you know the brands that you're getting. Or maybe, maybe this is just us, or maybe this is something I've had to adopt in marriage where I, my, my wife has a set list of this is the brand, this is the item, this is what we're doing. And it just becomes routine. You know what you're getting, where you're getting it from. We often eat the same type of foods and so on, and we get into this type of routine. And often I think we take for granted things that they're just the way that they are. And also we get used to things being a certain way according to how we use them. Things often will have a purpose according to how we use them, but I also wonder, do they always actually have that actual purpose, or do we just treat them that way? For example, I think some things are designed for quality control, while others are, have a purpose of making things a little easier, a little better. I, I, I just basic Google search, and I was wondering, what are some of the things that we use a certain way that are meant to be used another way, or uh, they're made a certain way for a specific purpose? For example, the hole on the top of a ballpoint pen lid has a purpose. It's not just them trying to cut costs to save money on plastic. It's trying to make sure that the pen doesn't dry out. Did you know that doorknobs, they're, they're made of brass, not just because they look good, because, but because brass is naturally a germ-resistant metal, and given the high volume of people that might be touching a doorknob, it made sense for them to make it out of brass. Or uh, a lot of us are wearing jeans this morning. Uh, that little pocket in your jeans is not for the extra bit of change that we all sometimes carry and pick up and then bury in there and forget until we put it in the laundry and then we end up finding it in the laundry after we wash it. I'm not, okay, it's just me. Uh, that is not the only reason for that pocket. It is actually, it was meant for a, a pocket watch for men in the 19th and early 20th century. That was the purpose of it. And, and this is one that I wish I had known earlier in life. This, thankfully, wasn't the only time I found out about it. But the, on, on your gas gauge, there's that little gas symbol with the arrow. That's actually pointing to which side of your car is the tank. So anytime you borrow someone's vehicle and you're trying to help them out with a fun tank of gas, don't have to guess. You can look and find it out. I think there's a lot of things that we interact with that have a purpose that we're not aware of. And the challenge with that is that even if we are not aware of the purpose, you often still interact with them. You're often still aware of them. And here's the problem I think I see, see for us in our, in our culture, in our world. I think it's more difficult 
to find fullness in life when you don't feel like you have a purpose in life. We, we know that life is in front of us and we interact with it. But when we don't feel like there's a purpose for it, it just becomes a part of our routine, the mundane. Have you ever wrestled with knowing or articulating your unique or specific purpose in this world? I think some of us struggle with with the what, some of us struggle with the why, other of us struggle with the how. Regardless of the missing piece, I would say it's a common feeling. And it's a frustrating feeling. When we're able to come up for air in the midst of the culture that desires grind and hustle, I think we all tend to wonder from time to time what we're actually meant to do with what American poet Mary Oliver calls this one wild, precious life. Now, Scripture, I think, gives us a lot of ideas and direction of what God is actually leading us to in in His Spirit. But for many of us, the searching for calling or mission or purpose is an ongoing area of growth and refinement. And I think that's why it's comforting to know just the simple fact that Jesus was keenly and innately aware of His own purpose. It seems in many ways that he has a daily focus fixed on that purpose that he has. Even in his final days under emotional, relational, and physical duress, Jesus articulated clearly and confidently his mission. Jesus had that at the forefront of his actions. Even when the circumstances around him seemed to be under extreme stress, his purpose was guiding him. When you know the purpose of something that you are engaging with, that is your life, how much different, how much more different would it be for you on a day-to-day basis? Often, our greatest struggle is our Western culture's desire for numbness, comfort, apathy. And the first thing that is put on the chopping block is genuine, outward, selfless purpose. There's a lot of things that culture likes about the idea of Jesus, of the fruits that that a life around Jesus produces, but it's not, as, not as simple as that, just to like it. Despite Jesus' many claims, he was rarely understood. And when his purpose spoke of things that confronted the way that people were living at the time, well, their anger, their frustration would be pointed at him. So let's look at the text together. When we look at the beginning of John 18, 
there's this purpose of this theme of purpose and identity that's riddled throughout. Not simply in the words that Jesus had, but in the way that people approached him. So in the in the garden where there's this moment where the soldiers arrive, it says that a detachment of soldiers are coming to, to take a hold of what's taking place, to, to grab Jesus and take him to jail, to put him on trial. This this can be perceived a lot of different ways, but let's understand a detachment was up to 200 soldiers. This was not just a small group that was coming to grab hold of Jesus. This was a a direct response to what they perceived as an insurrection against government authority. The religious power at the time had presented Jesus to to the government authority as a legitimate threat to their power. And when the threat to the power came, their response was to respond with more power. In a a show of force, this group of soldiers arrives, not just to take Jesus, actually, but to take all who were present. All of the followers of Jesus that would have been present at that time were in danger as well. This was a show of power saying that your insurrection won't stand up against the power of Rome. It's nothing in comparison. And they ask Jesus, are are you Jesus of Nazareth? And his response is significant. This is what John does often in, in the book. He uses language to speak to a greater narrative. And so the response of Jesus in this moment is, I am. It actually says, I am he, but he is an addition in the English translation. In reality, in the, in, in the original language, it just says, I am. And the authority that comes with a statement like I am is the language that God uses to speak of himself. This is consistent throughout the Bible. And the response that takes place in this moment is in line with the way that it's presented earlier in the, in the Old Testament. Because what happens, Jesus says, I am, and the soldiers all done up. They've got all the gear on. They are looking fierce. And Jesus says, I am, and the scripture says that they fall back. I am, but they fall back. And that is the consistent experience of humanity in the presence of God. In, in the book of Isaiah, when it talks about, the, talks about coming into the presence of God, it says that there's an undoing. In the gospel of Luke, when, when Peter comes to this moment of actually saying, you are God, you are the son of God, he actually falls to his knees. Every time there's an experience of coming into the presence of God, there is an actual physical response of falling to their knees or falling back. And I want you to think of it this way. It's as if if I'm standing here on this stage and a 300-foot rock comes through this ceiling and falls onto this stage right beside me, I'm most likely to fall. (laughs) I've got good balance, but that's a pretty significant moment. And this is kind of what is taking place within humanity. Anytime God comes into the biblical, into the the human timeline and reveals his glory, it knocks us to our knees. 
and knocks us off our feet. When, when the Bible talks in Ephesians 6 about putting on your, your, your armor, the full armor of God, it actually uses language of putting on the full armor of God and standing. In, in ancient warfare, it would have been a simple understanding to explain who was the victor by explaining who was standing at the end of it. There was a sense of victory that would come from the truth of standing. And so right before Jesus willingly gives himself to the cross and to being put under trial falsely and, and to be degraded and to be beaten, he reveals his glory. He says, I am. I am the one you're looking for. I am God. And they physically feel that reality. And if they had, I want you to catch this, to actually have the full knowledge in that moment, the glory of God is revealed for all to see. And then God says, I give myself freely to you. This is the beginning of the passion narrative, but at every step of Jesus's journey, Jesus is saying, I am going to give myself in all of my strength, in all of my power, in all of my glory, freely for those I love. Because they didn't come for just Jesus, they came for all that were present, and Jesus just gave himself. And this was the tone that was set, this substitution that was set from the very beginning. And then he's brought before the religious authority who don't do much to actually discover what's going on. They just want to provide their own narrative, and, and out of their own fear, they've responded a certain way. And then they bring him to, to Pilate. And now, Pilate is an interesting individual in this story that is the passion. Because, because Pilate's not a Jew. He, he has no religious connection in this moment. Pilate, in fact, is essentially a puppet governor trying to make sure that he's enough of a power broker in the area so that he can survive till his next term. And yet he's drawn into this situation with Jesus. This, this portion of a conversation between Pilate and John is actually the longest narrative between the two in all the four Gospels. And then Jesus responds to some of the questions that Pilate says, and, and he says, my kingdom is not of this world. The, the word of is probably better translated from when we read it. My kingdom is not from this world. That is to say that it's not that we're about being a separatist movement. That we're just looking to, to find out who Jesus is and escape up into heaven. And then we'll experience heaven up in a different space. And that will be the kingdom that God has for us. No, this is Jesus saying, my kingdom is not from this world, but it is for this world. It, it, it has its core and its base in something that is more than what you're used to. 
This is why we need to understand the historical context of even what's taking place within the Roman governance of that area. What people knew to be true of kingdoms was this. Kingdoms operated based upon power, based upon violence, based upon authority. If they wanted to assert their kingdom, they would kill somebody. They would be violent in nature. And they would do so with this mentality that this will provide me the world that I want to live in. And this response from Jesus is, is a direct pushback against what all that Pilate knew. Because Pilate, he hears Jesus say, oh, so you got a kingdom, so you're a king, hey? This is who you are. You're a king. And Jesus, I love, he comes back at him and he says, oh, I didn't really say that. Because I'm not about, to, I'm not trying to say that I'm a king. I haven't said it. You said it. The people that were declaring Hosanna said it. The only way that Jesus actually describes himself is as a servant and as the son of man. And in Daniel, when Daniel has his dream, he, he sees the son of man being raised up to the enthronement, to glory. But it wasn't until he was crushed by the beast. That is to say that Jesus wasn't in his place of being enthroned in that moment that he wanted to declare. He was more concerned and consumed with the people knowing very simply that he had come to serve and to save. And this is what he wants us to hear and to know this morning. For each of you in this room, wherever you might feel like you're at in your journey of faith, that the truth of who Jesus is remains the same for you. That it is not dependent upon you understanding or receiving or agreeing. Jesus still died and rose again for you. There was still freedom and healing and resurrection offered to you. Because that is who Jesus is and that is the kingdom that Jesus wishes to establish. But here's the beauty that we are get to see each and every day. If the kingdom of God is not from this world and it is for this world, then those who say, I am going to be born again, I'm going to receive the gift that Jesus gives freely, are invited to participate in what that kingdom might actually do for this world, in this world. It's not just a high-minded concept that we have of this good, good person that lived a long time ago that wanted people to be peaceful. It was an invitation that your life, that my life is not simply overwhelmed by what the world might say is right and good. That in fact, the minute that we d declare, Jesus, you are my savior. I receive your love and your grace. You are accepting the truth that the kingdom that you are now part of here on earth is not from this world. The prophets, they foretold of this kingdom and the people of God anticipated it. N.T. Wright says it best. He says, our whole culture is so fixated on dying and going to heaven when the whole scripture is about heaven coming down to earth. 
if the kingdom of God was born of the value system of this world, then Jesus would have had guerrilla assassins climbing through the windows of that judiciary building and killing anybody and everybody that would have contended against Jesus if that was his value system. Because to be of the world is to be of that value set. But how kingdoms of this world, they work. They, they, I kill you, I get your land, and I get your stuff. And that's how kingdoms work. But what Jesus is saying is my kingdom is not grounded in that kind of value set. My kingdom is not from this world. Why does this matter? Because I think we're trying so often to live out good lives. That we want to do the right thing. Maybe that's the optimist in me. I think that there's a lot of good intention that exists in in this room and beyond. But how often do we fall short? And the kingdom that God desires us to be part of is from a source that is different than what Jesus than what Jesus is drawing from. There's an individual by the name of Mark Sayers who writes a, a book called Disappearing Church. And a concept that he brings to the forefront, we live in a time and place where there's a lot of nice ideas that are at the forefront of society. Good ideas. Things of, of, of equality. Of, of overcoming discrimination. Of the reconciliation of people and relationships. Of, of generosity and, and, and charity. These are good ideas that are, are permeating much of our culture. But what we have seen take place over and over again is that we have a culture that desires the kingdom without the king. That they want the fruit of what the kingdom produces. People are going to have peace, be peaceful in their nature. They're going to be generous to one another. And they're going to give money away and they're going to be really kind on a day-to-day basis. Even a place like Hollywood is a good example. That which might be elevated to be perceived as the pinnacle of Western culture has a dark underbelly to it. Men and women that have done a lot of great things out in the surface for all to see that we would celebrate and call good But then when you look at the lives that they have underneath the surface and the manner that they've actually treated the people around them is not reflective of the actions that everyone has celebrated. It's the kingdom without the king. You and I are invited to be part of that kingdom, but the question is, are we going to have the source of the king? To simply want to do good things is good for a moment, but we are not capable of sustaining that purely on our own. Even when we think of things like spiritual disciplines, spiritual disciplines are not how you earn God's love. They are how you enjoy it. So when you pray and when you spend time with God in intimacy, it's not to bring God to you, but to realize how near God chooses to be to you. 
When, when we do things like fast, it's not to invoke the hand of God, but to see how God is already working in the world. When, when we do things like Sabbath and rest and taking a day, it's not to please God by taking a break, but to experience the rest that God is always offering to us. Reading scripture is not to find the rules that we need to follow to get into heaven, but to hear God's love speak through the annals of history to your heart and to my heart. When we do things like silence and solitude, it's not just for personal peace and to feel good about ourselves, but for an intimate relationship with the creator of the universe that wants to know you. This is to be a participant in the kingdom. Part of the, the there's an interplay on Palm Sunday. There's a celebration that happens, and I think that there is a tragedy that takes place because the people come and they're declaring, Hosanna, Hosanna, the king has come. And the purpose that they seem to have imposed on Jesus was unfortunately not the purpose that he had held for himself. They had their own agenda for his arrival. But Jesus won't even accept the title of king. He calls himself the servant. And he's not coming to defeat the enemy that they think is, is so present and, and pr happening in their situation. He's come to defeat the enemy of death itself. Because he says, for this I have been born to testify to the truth. And everyone who hears the truth hears my voice. And Pilate, he, his response is right in line with what you would expect if you were to walk into maybe a, a, a philosophy room. What is truth? But let's understand, like, Pilate's not a philosopher. Pilate is, is not Plato and Socrates lounging and relaxing and eating a grape and saying, what is truth? No, Pilate, Pilate is a power broker. Pilate is an agent of Caesar. Pilate is someone who is used to truth being molded to his preference. Pilate probably perceives truth to simply be whatever Caesar says it to be. Because in, in this moment, if you think about how, how the Roman Empire operated, we want the land of the Gauls. Therefore, we deem them subhuman. Therefore, we can kill them and take their land because that is the truth. And Pilate is thinking to himself in this moment, I have the truth in my hand. I get to decide if you are guilty or not. And even with this slightly belligerent, perhaps mocking response as what is truth. Jesus does not come down with the authority that we've already seen him to hold. Pilate is confronted with the violence of the mob and Jesus asks him, which king will you follow? The mob asks him the same question. And Pilate ultimately chooses not simply Caesar, but violence in the name of Caesar, and he submits to the violence of the mob. 
at the very beginning of John 18, we see the kingdom as the world is. Soldiers show up heavy-handed with violence in mind, ready to take an innocent man. Peter responds with violence in turn and cuts off the ear. And then we get to the, to the end of the chapter and, and violence comes back to the forefront because even Pilate offers to the people of Israel, I release one of your people every year. Would you choose the one who chooses peace or will you choose the one of violence? Because Barabbas was known as not just simply uh, a bad man, but, but a murderer. As, a, as an insurrectionist of his own, actually. Someone that was trying to find freedom for the people of Israel by violent means. This was the kingdom at play in both senses. The kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. And the invitation that was brought to Pilate was, will you choose the way of violence or will you choose the way of peace? Will you choose the, the way of the world or will you choose the way that Jesus is? Even Pilate's wife calls him up and says, hey, I've had a dream. Don't do it. <laughs> and like every good husband, he should have listened to his wife. Unfortunately, he does not. And yet he chooses again the way of the world. Jesus in this moment and all throughout gives himself willingly while showing his power absolutely. Is there no greater sacrifice than that? And Jesus shows that, that their way is, is not my way. If I wanted to, I could, but I've chosen not to because that's not my purpose. I have so much at my disposal, but that's not my purpose. I can do more than you think I can do, but that's not my purpose. His purpose was leading the way. His purpose was showing, uh, it was illustrating how he was actually going to make decisions and, and move forward. And so the question that we are left with as followers of Christ in everything that we do, you might have so much more at your disposal and the things around you might spark your imagination, but what is the core purpose within you that is going to form your reality? Because at a baseline, as a follower of Jesus, the purpose that we are given is to be in relationship with the one who wishes to be in relationship with you. And out of that purpose, we then live a life that is part of the kingdom. Perhaps this morning you're, you're here and you're feeling like the mundane habits of your life are overwhelming all that you do. My invitation to you is that you are designed with a purpose in mind and a place to start. It's not simply a self-help book or a great personality test, but it's going to the source of that which is not from this world. Everyone here is imbued with a baseline purpose of being in a relationship with God. To know that you are loved creates purpose and security like nothing else. Worship team, you can join me at the front as we close. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're saying, I know how to build a kingdom of this world, 
but I don't know how to build a kingdom that's not from this world. The first step to change in that is awareness and repentance. And repentance can be a word that makes us feel sometimes guilty. That's not the purpose of it. Repentance is recognizing that the direction that I'm going is a direction that is going to lead to harm to myself, harm to others. It's not the direction that is desired for my life to be life in the fullest. And repentance is the decision just to turn around. Just to turn around from the direction that we might have been going. To reject the wrong way and to accept the way of Jesus. Because when we are part of the kingdom, I think that's when we can truly celebrate. Because we begin to celebrate the things that are of Jesus. And we begin to participate that within that in all that we do. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God broke into our world in a massive, marked way through life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And God's kingdom came in a way that was decisive through Jesus. He knew that his mission, his purpose, was to live a life that none of us could live, free from sin and shame, and to conquer death so that we could all experience life in the coming kingdom, both here and now and on to eternity. We, we need to be a people who's who desire to know the purpose that God has placed upon our lives. Not just so that we know for the sake of knowing, but that it might inform all we do. Because to, to know your purpose in God doesn't mean that every single person here needs to be a pastor or living in a church or a missionary uh, far, far away. But it does mean that your workplaces are, are spaces where the kingdom of God can be at work. That, where, that your families can be spaces where generosity can be at the foundation of it and love can be shown with reconciliation in mind. That spaces like, like driving and going to the grocery store can be opportunities to be participants of the kingdom of God at work in the world. To know our purpose to see a kingdom that's not from this world, that's not of this world that we're invited into. It's the beginning of actually living a life that is reflective of the one who invites us each and every day. You are loved and he wants to have a relationship with you. He has a purpose for you beyond what you can see in the here and now. And he wants to come alongside you so that you might discover that wherever you might be at. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Lord Jesus, we just, we come before you. Overwhelmed by the burdens of life and and needing a refreshment of our imagination, of our spirit from you. For all the ways in which we have found, fallen into just a mundane, ha habitual lifestyle that has 
has no real openness to what the Spirit might be inviting to us. We just we come before you and we repent. Help us to turn around, to have an awareness and to turn back to you. To have our imaginations of what the kingdom could look like around us be brought forth and flourished. For, for those in the room this morning that are carrying a burden because they, they know that they have adopted the way of this world, the, the kingdom of this world. But we've, we've all fallen into it, believing that, that a sense of violence or a sense of hard action or, or just choosing ourselves over others is going to accomplish the things that we desire in our hearts. Jesus, I just pray that you would bring healing to those spaces. And for all the good works and good intentions in the room, thank you that you meet us in those spaces and you give us the strength to do more than we ever thought possible. I pray that there is just an emboldenment that is birthed in this room this morning. To see the kingdom at work in the world and to desire opportunities to participate in it. Give us words to speak to those who need to be encouraged. Give us prayers to pray for those who need to see breakthrough. Give us eyes to see those who are on the outskirts, who feel, who, who feel forgotten and, and betrayed to discover reconciliation through an outstretched hand of somebody in this room. And let there be healing and resurrection from all the dead places in our lives by the power of your spirit and for the gift and for the flourishing of your kingdom. Thank you that you came for the poor and the broken and the outsider. That the kingdom is for, for those of us that fall there. And thank you that that is the invitation given to us this morning. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope it challenged, encouraged, and inspired you in your walk with our Lord Jesus Christ. To keep up with City Collective, make sure to check us out on Instagram and Facebook at City Collective Church. Have a great week.